Very good. It's good to see so many kids here, so many faces here. It's just good to be here together, amen? Especially in light of some of the current distresses, it's just good to be together to encourage one another. Uh, I know, you know, me and my wife, as we've been talking about just the events that have been happening overseas in Ukraine and uh, between U- Ukraine and Russia, just, you know, just some, some of those, um, those things have just really been impacting us, you know, personally and just things in our lives, you know, friends of friends um, passing away and uh, just difficulties in relationships and things like that. It, it can start to wear on you. And especially when you think about just things that are happening across the world and as we're singing about Christ and His kingship, I, for one, I'm, I'm longing more and more for the kingdom of God. Amen? I'm longing more and more for Christ the King, you know, to, to take the reins and to take over because, let's face it, there are really no good leaders <laughs> uh, in, in this world. And we pray for them and, and uh, we, we ask that God would, would guide them and, and lead them. But uh, it doesn't matter who it is, Democrat, Republican, whatever, they all fall way, way short of God's glory and His kingship. And so I, I just long for um, His kingdom and His righteousness to come. And so just the longer I'm alive, the more my heart longs for heaven, the more I long for the Lord. And I'm, I'm wondering if you're feeling the same way. Um, right now we're in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, a letter from Paul to the church at Corinth. And we're in chapter 7, and through this chapter, we've talked about marriage, we've talked about human sexuality, we've talked about divorce, and Paul, throughout, has given uh, what he says is, is his practical pastoral counsel to the church at Corinth based off of the things that they were dealing with. And it's important to make that distinction because Paul himself, even just last week, we read how he said, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And so as he's talking to the people at Corinth, he's talking to them during their current distresses. And we talked about this a little bit last week, how um, oppression was on the rise against Christianity because Christianity was basically throwing a wrench into the, uh, um, into the Roman world and into their cultural practices. And uh, in Paul's call for, for purity and, and uh, unity among the church and for people to come out of the culture and to be holy and set apart, that, that was bad for business in the Roman world. Uh, we use the example of, of the silversmith who made uh, idols of the many gods in, in Greek mythology and as Christians were, were calling for people to, to worship one God, one exclusive God, to worship Jesus, uh, this was bad business for the silversmith, uh, as you can imagine. And so people were getting hostile, uh, tensions were on the rise, and it was no longer safe to be as public a Christian as it might have been to begin with. And when we look at things happening over in Ukraine, watching videos of of uh, Christians and churches going underground, singing hymns. Maybe you saw some of those, those videos. Um, but Paul, he wanted to give them advice for life because uh, they've been writing him and asking, what about this? What about that? You know, what, what, if, what if you're married? What if you're divorced? What, uh, what about this? What about that? And so he wanted to give them practical advice. But some of these things was not clearly in Scripture. The Bible was silent about it. And so he made it clear that this is my pastoral advice for you. And so when we look at the instruction that Paul gives today, as we're going to read verses 25 through 40 together, uh, we're going to see that a lot of this advice is based off of the things that are happening in that time and at that place. And so these are to be taken as ultimately as concessions and not commands. And if somebody decides to marry, for example, during a time of distress, then they're not sinning. But Paul would encourage them to really just think about it, to pray about it, to consider with shrewdness what is happening in the world and in their culture. 
And if somebody is in an abusive relationship or they're married to an adulterer, an unrepentant adulterer, then they, of course, are not sinning if they left, even during times of distress. And if someone, uh, you know, Paul's heart is simply that he wants to spare us from going through unnecessary trials and trouble. And that's really the heart of a pastor. That's really my heart is that my, my first priority is to teach and to preach the Word of God as it's been given to us over the years. It's my job to teach this to you and your job to decide what to do with it. But also, part of my job is to come alongside you and care for you, to walk alongside you through all your difficulty and your decision-making, that if, if you need godly counsel uh, from somebody who knows the Scripture, who, who you know, knows the heart of God the best that, that I can, you know, then my job is to walk alongside you so that when things come up that aren't clearly stated in Scripture, then I can offer you at least the heart of God or what I think the heart of God is on the matter. I can provide for you practical wisdom. And so Paul, when he gave practical wisdom, obviously he was a guy with great credentials. He was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the Scriptures, you know, legalistically at one point. Uh, knew them upside down and backwards. And then, of course, he, he had the conversion when Christ uh, came to visit him that one day. And, uh, and he was a man on fire for God, just traveling around, sharing the gospel to those who would hear it, even those who didn't want to hear it. He was often stoned and thrown out of city gates. He was thrown into prison for sharing the gospel. And the reason for this is because he believed in the power of gospel of the gospel, because he believed it was the power for the salvation of all who believed, just as I believe the same thing. I've studied and I've experienced many of life's um, worldviews and philosophies, and all of them come up empty. But as I have pressed into Christ, and as I have, have wrestled with my own salvation, and as I've dug into his word, I've come to be completely satisfied with the truth of God's Word and with the hope and the joy of the salvation that He promises. And so, it's my delight and my joy, just as it was Paul's, to walk alongside, alongside you in this life. Now, I want you to consider our current situation. Now, imagine you lived in Ukraine right now. Do you think you'd be planning for a wedding at this point? Like, how would your wedding plans be going? Let's say you're, you're, you're deeply in, in love with somebody. Uh, you're engaged. You've been engaged for a little while. Uh, what, do you, what do you think would happen with your marriage plans? Might put it on hold, maybe? Or maybe if, if, you're really, if you're really just set on being married, it'd be like on Braveheart. You'd just grab the nearest clergy. You'd go out into the woods in the middle of the night and you would have a marriage ceremony just between you and, and God and the, and the clergyman. Um, but it, things change. When, when the culture is going through great distress, things change. And that's true with being married, being engaged, being a widow. These are all different things to consider. I mean, consider how difficult it might be if, if you were married and you were living in Ukraine. And as a man... You were not allowed to leave because it was your duty to stay and fight. But your, your wife and your kids, you know, they, they could go, they could flee. Uh, I have some pictures up here. Uh, imagine just how difficult it would be to be a husband. And, and think about this scenario. Sometimes when this happened, everyone was, was sleeping in their homes. They, they have been hearing about the tension on the news, but they were sleeping in their homes, they were with their family, they were going to work, and then all of a sudden they wake up one day, and they're, they're hearing bombing, they're seeing tanks driving across the border, and suddenly just their entire world is flipped upside down, and they're wondering, what, what are we going to do with our, our, our family, what are we going to do with our kids, we, we've got to protect our kids, we've got to get them to safety, what is happening and these are pictures that have been taking, taken recently of 
particularly this one in the middle here, where this father is saying goodbye to his wife and his daughter, and he doesn't know if that's the last time he's ever going to get to see them again. Just imagine the, the heartache of that. Now imagine if you're like the young man who, who was primed and ready for service, unmarried man, just uh, young in, in his uh, early 20s, and the detonator is not going off on the bridge, and so he jumps into action, and he runs to the bridge to where the explosives are, and he sets them off, sacrificing his own life to stop Russian tanks from crossing the bridge. Now, if you're a, a young single man and you're all full of gusto and pride of your country and you want to protect your fellow countrymen, you run out there with reckless abandon. You don't have a wife. You don't have kids. You're just like, I'm going to do this because this is the right thing to do. It would be a much more difficult decision to make if you were a married man in that moment. You see the tanks are coming. You see that the, the detonator is not working. And you know that in order to, to, to blow that up, somebody has to go there and sacrifice their life. In that moment, I'm sure your wife and your kids would pop into your head and possibly even cause you to pause or to stay, to not jump into action and do what's necessary. Oftentimes I look at the Apostle Peter, who we know was a married man, and we know had some hesitancy when it came to leaping into action for the Lord. He was the one who denied Christ three times on the night in which he was betrayed, in which he was taken captive. And people said, aren't you the guy who's been walking around with Jesus? I don't know him. No, I've never seen him before in my life. I don't, I don't know this guy. He denied Christ because he was scared. And I think he was scared in part because his wife, possibly his kids, popped into his mind in that moment, causing him to hesitate. Rather than doing what's right and good, rather than offering his life along with his Savior for their cause. And so we're called to be wise and to be shrewd about the world around us, prayerfully making life decisions based off of the truth of God's Word, but also understanding what's happening in the world. And so this is really Paul's heart when he says, if you are unmarried, stay unmarried. If you're married, then don't leave your spouse. This is the heart behind that, that because of the current distress, because of what's happening, I can, I can just hear him talking to the Ukrainians, because of what's happening, it's probably wise and shrewd not to flip your life upside down, not to make any major life changes. And so, we're called to be wise as Christians. And God expects us to, to pursue wisdom and to pursue skillful application in all the things that we say and do. Uh, Proverbs 3.13.18 said, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Talking about wisdom. Long life is in her right hand, and in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And so God expects us to live with wisdom. He gave us brains that can reason and think for a reason so that we can understand the sign of the times and know what's happening. We can predict with, with some level of accuracy what's coming our way and we can be prepared for, for these things. He doesn't want us to live in ignorance. He wants us to have understanding and wisdom. But then, of course, we know we could have all the smarts in the world. You you could be the most brilliant scientist in the world. You could be the most brilliant academic in the world. But if you deny the existence of God, which is the most plain thing, 
The evidence is all around us in his creation. This did not come from nowhere. Something, somewhere, somebody had to put this thing into motion. The unmoved mover, the intelligent designer, this came from something. Evidence for God is everywhere. And so for a person to say, there is no God, are the words of a fool. And, and to get to that point is to proactively suppress the evidence that exists all around us. Naturally, when people are born into the world, we come to this understanding that there is something out there. There is something more than just this. This is in the heart of every person. But over the years of active, actively suppressing that voice in your head, your heart becomes hard and you start to passionately reject that and becomes callous. But Proverbs 1.7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so, in our search for wisdom, in our search for knowledge, it begins with acknowledging that there is a God. And then it, it continues with acknowledging that God didn't just make us to flounder and suffer forever, but rather God desires to be connected to His creation. And through the biblical account, we know that, that God desires to have a relationship with us, and He made a way for that relationship through His Son, Jesus Christ, so that all who believe in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. And so it begins with knowledge of the Lord, fear of the Lord, but it doesn't stop there. You don't just say, there is a God, and then you, you sit down and you wait for God to do everything for you, and you just kind of wait for God to, to think for you. No, God expects us to use the gifts that He's given us, our bodies, our brain, to the best of our ability while we are alive to live in wisdom. And this has to do with making decisions about who we're going to spend the rest of our life with whether right now is a good time to get married or not, whether I need to leave my spouse because they are abusive and they are abusing, abusing the kids. I need to not be foolish and stay here and keep them in that situation. God gives us wisdom to think through these things because not everything is exactly written down in Scripture. Sometimes the Bible is silent when it comes to your specific situation. And in times like those, God expects us to rely on the wisdom that He gives us in our brain, but also through the fellowship that we receive in the church. We're not only called to be wise, but we're also called to be shrewd. Consider when Christ sent His disciples out into the world, He understood that it was a hostile place. Is the world a hostile place today? Well, we're, we're pretty blessed living here in America. We can still, uh, our kids can still play out in the neighborhoods relatively safe. But there's certain places across this country that are very unsafe. Even when I was a kid, we'd, we'd go see like a Seahawks game or a Mariners game. And I remember walking downtown and it was a little intimidating. And now as an adult, when I go to Seattle uh, to see a game or whatever, it's a lot more intimidating than it was when I was a kid. And I was an ignorant, naive kid. But now as an adult who understands evil a little bit more, who understands the potential dangers, there's a lot of it. It's very intimidating. There's a lot of evil around the world. And so Christ sending his disciples out, he said to be as shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. And so... As Christians, even though we're not to live in fear of anything or, or anyone, because the only, only person we should fear is God, because God is the one who has the authority to throw both your body and your soul into hell. But what can man do to us? What's the worst they can do to us? Kill us? Big deal. You're sending me to my maker. That's where I want to go anyway. 
And the longer I'm here, the more I long to, to be there. Not that I would send myself there. But it means I, I have no fear of what anyone would do to me. Big deal. People are attacking our country. I'm supposed to defend my neighborhood and my family. Put me on the front line. I don't care. Stonewall Jackson put me up on a horse. I'll be reading my Bible while bullets are whizzing by my head. I don't care. I have no fear because God is with me. And I believe in his promises. But we're called to be shrewd. We're not called to be fearful, but we are called to be shrewd. And that means to be alert, to be aware, to understand the enemy, to understand what's happening around us. If you put your head in the sand with all this stuff that's happening around the world, then you are not going to be prepared for what's next. The Bible tells us to be watchmen, to be on alert to be paying attention. This doesn't mean that you become like hyper-obsessed watching the news 24-7, but it does mean you should have a general idea of what's happening. Um, like if I came up and started talking about Ukraine and you're like, well, what's happening in Ukraine? At this point, there's a war. There's a war in our world that is happening. You should probably know what's going on, at least a little bit. And that all has to do also with our own personal life, decisions that we make. There's many people we know here who are uh, you know, thinking about or have already moved to different states because of things that are happening. Jessica and Bucky, they're already in Florida. Um, the Olson family are currently in Texas on new property that they bought. Thankfully, they said they're going to stay with us for another few years, I hope, Lord willing. Brad and Carrie, I know, have been looking at places in Texas. So, I mean, there's a lot of things going on and a lot of people making decisions based off of the wisdom that God has given them or, or a calling or a leading that God has given them. And this is good. This is what God calls us to do, to be shrewd. <clears throat> but ultimately, God calls us to keep our eyes fixed on His truth. Because even the most amount of wisdom and understanding, if God is calling you to do something that is totally unconventional, at least according to the world's standard of, of wisdom and knowledge, if God is calling you to do something that the world considers to be foolish, but you know it's God calling you to do it, you better do that thing. Because if God is in it, how can you possibly fail? But we've read stories about those who have denied the call of God when, for example, Jonah, God said, Jonah, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. You know, those people who have been oppressing you for all those decades? Yeah, I, I want you to go there to your enemies, the one who, who have been imprisoning your family and, and, and your friends. And, and I want you to go preach to them the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Well, he didn't know Jesus Christ at the time. The good news of Yahweh. And he was reluctant. And so he tried to run as far away as he possibly could from Nineveh. He was trying to get on a boat and run to Spain, essentially. And what happened along the way? Obviously, God is very influential. And you'll find this out in your life if you haven't already. If, if you're running away from God, boy, he, he has a way of really inspiring you to to do what he's asking you to do. Jonah, obviously, he threw into the belly of a, of a great fish. And when the fish spewed him out onto the land, he said, okay, okay, I'll go, I guess. And he went and he preached. And If God is calling you to do something that you don't necessarily want to do or that the world considers to be conventional wisdom, and that takes precedent over everything. And so when we think about the current events, when it comes to Ukraine, for example, Jesus gives all believers, them and us, a very specific and prophetic instruction. Matthew 24, 4-14 says, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. 
We've heard, uh, you know, many people say, well, where are these people who are claiming to be Jesus himself? Well, not many of you have probably experienced that. I, I was in a country church of the Open Bible when I was young, uh, where my dad was an elder at one point. And a guy in a, in a robe with like a headband came walking in, claiming to be the resurrected Lord. I kid you not. It was a Pentecostal church, so you saw stuff like this a lot. Uh, but he came in, and he, he started, you know, uh, trying to speak, and he was saying things that were not biblical, and I, I think he was even swearing in his message. And, and so the elders were like, okay, okay, you know, and they ushered him out. <clears throat> But I think what he's talking about here is there's many people who have given um, versions of Jesus that are not the real Jesus. People who have claimed like, oh, this is, this, yeah, you're Jesus that you're talking about. That's not the real Jesus. This is the real Jesus. Now, Jesus would have, would have been, been okay with all of this stuff. But, but that's not the Jesus of the Bible. So there's alternative Jesuses that people have invented over time. But we're interested in the Jesus of the Bible. And so there are many who have already gone out from the very beginning claiming a different Jesus than what the Bible teaches. And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. I mean, this has been going on since the time of the disciples. But it's going on here and now as well. And this should grab our attention. When we're hearing of wars and rumors, I mean, what is China going to do? China is now in discussion with North Korea, Kim Jong-un. Uh, is there going to be nuclear warfare? We woke up this morning to see that, that Putin has got his finger on the button and he's threatening to push it. You know, so what, what is going to happen? Well, if we continue, see that you are not alarmed. Well, that's the first thing. Don't be alarmed. And I know uh, you wake up to see this stuff and, and the first thing is you're... you're just the pit of your stomach just drops, and you're just like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And concern, and I, I know me and my wife, we've been watching the news over the last few days, just like looking at what's going on. But then we turn our attention to the Word of God, which says, don't be alarmed. These things are going to happen, and when the end is near, these things are going to be happening. So don't be surprised. Don't expect for a utopia to come before the end comes and the kingdom of God comes. He says, Do not be alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will rise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So you see, the, the word of God promises us that difficulty will come. We will have difficult time. And so, in light of this kind of distress, the distress that is promised to come, the distress that exists here and now, Paul is counseling about what to do with practical life, specifically when it comes to those who are engaged to be married or those who are widows. And so, these questions will be answered in brief this morning as we complete uh, chapter 7 here together. So starting in verse 36, I know that, that was a long introduction, but it's important. <laughs> it's important for us to be on the same page and to be under, understanding of what's happening here and now um, and understanding where Paul's heart is coming from as far as giving counsel when there's times of distress. So verse 36 in chapter 7, he continues, If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. 
But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Now again, remember, this is Paul's concession. This is not a command from the Lord. It doesn't mean we should devalue or discard this counsel, but it's important to know the difference because he makes that distinction. And so here he's addressing the betrothed. Last week we talked about the married and the divorced and the unmarried. This week we're talking about the betrothed, those who are engaged to be married. Now, in those years, there was a, a window of years that a woman had would have been the most appealing to a man who was searching for a wife. Um, so therefore, for a man to prolong his engagement beyond this window, and, and I'm not going to give an age period, but beyond this window, uh, it would have been cruel for man to have a prolonged engagement. So for example, great distresses are happening, a guy's engaged to a girl, and she's like, so when are we going to get married? Uh, it's not a good time to get married now, but, you know, because of taxes and, and because of finances. It's just better if we just don't marry. And then she's like, okay, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. But when are we going to get married? I'll, I'll tell you when. I'll tell you when. I, I'll tell you when I'm ready. You know, just, just trust me. I'll, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm going to marry you. And then a year goes by. Two years go by. Five years, and she comes back and she says, so about this marriage thing, I'm, I'm now getting older. I'm not getting any younger. Um, I'm ready to start having some babies. I'm ready to start building a family together. There's a war going on. You, come on, you know. This is not a good time to get married. No, excuse, excuse, excuse. It was seen as a cruel thing. In fact, this is what Paul means when he says that if he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if you're going to engage a person, put a date on it. Get married. Don't extend it too far. I mean, my, my wife and I, we waited for, what, a year? We, we planned for about a year, right? And we had been dating for five years. We got engaged, um, and we got married right? And even a year seems like a long time, but for a woman who's a planner and wants the perfect wedding, a year is about right. You know, you got to get all the things in order. You got to do fundraisers to get all the expensive things you want and the, the big, you know, the expensive, uh, everything is expensive when it comes to weddings. But the heart of this is if you if you are engaged to a person um, and, and you are determined to be married and she is young and she is in that window, then you marry her. You do what you say you're going to do and marry her. But if not, then it's the right thing to do to say, you know what, I'm not going to hold you up. I'm not going to hold you up because I, I have some reservations about getting married during this time and so therefore... You know, I, I don't want to hold you back from being able to find a husband. That would be one thing you could do. But Paul wanted to make sure that his counsel about staying as you are was, was not misunderstood or uh, abused by men who were engaged to women during this time. He wanted men to be uh, upstanding and, and to treat their uh, betrothed well. And so... He also says, but men, if, if you're burning with passion, even if you have reservations, even if you don't think it's the right climate to get married in, if you're burning with passion, and let me, let me just explain this really quick, because back then it was understood that, that you didn't have intercourse until you were married. Times have changed a lot since then. Uh, and as a guy who does marriage counseling, I can't remember the last couple who I sat down with, who waited till they were married. 
It's, it's been, uh, the times have changed a lot. Back then, if a man was burning with passion, he would actually have to wait. Really. I mean, n- nobody was perfect, but culturally, it was understood that you wait till you're married. Culturally, it was accepted that way. And so, you have to understand that when he's talking this way, if, if you're burning with passion, then marry. And so, um, this was his practical instruction to these men. Now, he also uses the word, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving, uh, scholars really struggle to interpret this passage mainly because of the indefinite pronoun, anyone. So this is obviously referring to men who are engaged to young women, but it could also be referring to a father within a family who was at that time an authority over the marriage proceedings. So, I mean, today, you, you know, the, the man will typically go to um, the woman's father, ask permission. You know, that's pretty, that's pretty standard. I, I did that. Most people I talk to, men are willing, you know, they go and talk to the, the father. It's a respectful thing to do. And you ask for permission. Well, back then, it was a little more uh, strict than that. Uh, there was still permission that needed to be happen, uh, needed to happen. But the father oversaw the engagement. He oversaw the process of marriage. He was a lot more involved than most fathers are today when it comes to that. And so this could also be talking about a father who is in a position of authority over that engagement. That if they want to get married, that he should not try and prevent them from getting married. Uh, If they want to wait, then he should honor that as well. But what about women who are beyond that window, so to speak? And if there's a cultural distress that makes sense to prolong the engagement, Paul says, then you're not doing wrong. In fact, you might even be doing better. If you recognize the sign of the times, that it's difficult times, maybe you're, you're doing better for yourself. And again, remember, this is Paul's personal counsel This is not a command. But if you're engaged and you get married, you're not sinning. If you're engaged and you decide to wait because of the current situation, though not too long, then you are not sinning. Then he goes on to to wrap up this segment about marriage, about divorce, human sexuality, uh, engagement, widows, By talking about widows in verses 39 and 40. Let's take a look at that. Verse 39 says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So we don't need to go into great detail here because Paul is reinforcing the point that he made earlier on in this chapter, particularly verses 8 and 9, where he says, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And of course, we talked about all the ins and outs of divorce um, back in January 24th, did a sermon on the rules of divorce, all that the Bible has to say about divorce, what's permissible, what's seen as sinful, and so on. And we don't need to rehash all that, but we do want to look at what Paul is saying here. So when he says, if she wishes to remarry, remarry in the Lord, what he is calling for is for widows to have the same standard as a young betrothed person or young person when it comes to marriage. And I've seen this a lot, and I can, I can imagine it. I can understand it. But those who have been married for a long time, who've experienced sex in, in many different ways with their spouse for a long time, have become accustomed to a certain sex ritual within marriage, but then for that all of a sudden to stop, either through divorce or becoming a widow, I can imagine that would be a really hard thing to put off. And so when you're lonely 
and uh, a man or a woman comes into your life, uh, a possible suitor when you're, when you're a widow, uh, it might be enticing for you to think that, oh, I've been married once before, God won't mind if I just you know, have, have an evening with this person. But the rules are the same, according to Scripture. If you are going to remarry, if you're going to date, if you're going to court another person as a widow, then consider yourself as you would have before your first spouse. Do things properly. Don't have sex before your marriage. Court them properly. Have engagement. Do all the things right. Just because you've done it once before does not justify sexual sin after. And so this is what he means by remarry in the Lord. Make sure it's good and right and proper the way that you do it. And then he makes the point that she or he would be happier if she or he remains unmarried. I've often thought about this, that you know I've, I've invested so much time and, and effort into my relationship now. As I mentioned before, I've put all my eggs into Amy's basket. And I've totally exhausted my, my uh, attempts at, at romance and everything like that on Amy. I've given it all that I got, and I, I could probably give more. I need to give more. But, but I, I just feel like if anything happened, if I became a widower, I don't want to hit that reset button. That just seems exhausting. I, I got nothing left to give. I, that's how I feel. I feel like I'd be perfectly satisfied just raising my daughters, taking care of my family, serving the church. That's how I feel right now anyway. But Paul makes the assertion that if you're a widow and you remain unmarried, then you would be happier. doesn't mean you would, wouldn't be happy if you got remarried, but he makes the claim that you'd be happier. Elsewhere, Paul talks about the lifestyle of an older widow that contains this kind of happiness. 1 Timothy 5, 3 through 7 says, She who is truly a widow, left alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even when she lives. And so the, the believing spouse who has given her life to the Lord and who is serving God will be free to do so and will be happy doing so. And this brings me to the last sentence here, then we'll close up for today. Paul makes a statement, <clears throat> and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And as I was studying that statement, it, it vexed me what he meant. It was just kind of, it felt like it was just out of context. Where did that statement come to? And I, too, think I have the Spirit. Oh, that's nice, Paul. Good. Okay, you have the Spirit. Good. I think it's connected. I think Paul could be speaking from personal experience here when it comes to talking about widows or widowers. Many people assume that the Apostle Paul had never married. But I think some clues, even in this chapter, suggest otherwise, that possibly he was a widower. For, for example, 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul refers to himself as unmarried using the Greek word agabos, which he uses elsewhere to refer to those who have been married before and are now unmarried. Of, of course, it's not exclusively used in that way, but that is one possible usage of that word. And also, it would have been strange to think that a Pharisee would have gone all that time without being married. Because, you know, Pharisees were a, were a hot commodity. They were the, the big time, the big shot. You know, and it, it would have been strange if they would have not had a spouse. Something would have had to have been really wrong with them. And perhaps that's the, the thorn in Paul's side, is just that he could never attract a woman. Maybe he was really ugly or uh, wasn't very rich. Or I, I don't know, maybe, maybe he just... He just had a, a problem with ladies. He couldn't really talk to them. He got really nervous or something. I don't know. But practically speaking, I think it would be strange that he never married. And then he says, I think I too have the Spirit of God. 
And I think he says this because he's trying to make the point that God has given him a spirit of self-control as a widower, potentially. And that he can fully dedicate himself to the work of the Lord. And all you have to do is read through his letters, read the accounts about Paul, to see that this was a guy who was truly dedicated to Christ in such a way that a married man could hardly be. You compare him with Peter. Peter was a married man. Peter didn't cover nearly as much ground as the Apostle Paul. Paul could leave and come and go at the drop of a hat. Why? Because he had no baggage, so to speak. Paul was a man who could just, if God was calling him to go, he went. He went in dangerous situations, and he, he, he went with sort of a reckless abandon. Getting stoned stone nearly to death, whatever. Don't care, I don't got anybody back home. Take me home, Lord, I don't care. Whereas Peter would have been a little more reserved. And although we can't verify Paul's marriage history, absolutely. I mean, this is, it's a theory. I, I believe it's true based off of just that last line. It, it's the only way that line makes sense to me. But if it's true, it, it gives Paul credibility, more credibility when he's talking about widows and living for the Lord because he, he knows he's there. He's been there. When it comes to being married, talking on those matters, if he was never married once before, how could he speak with such authority and understanding if he wasn't married once before? Now, does that little tidbit, does that fact really matter? No, it's not a hill worth dying on. It's, it's not doctrine. But when it comes to pastoral advice, I think it matters when we listen to the experience of a man who's been there. And I think ultimately, just to wrap up chapter 7, I know we've been in chapter 7 for, I don't know, like <laughs> five or six weeks, a lot longer than I wanted to, but man, the way that Paul writes just is back and forth. It's difficult to handle. But I think one underlying point of all these, this practical wisdom that he gives is to emphasize the importance of being in church fellowship with one another. Because as I've mentioned before, the Bible sometimes is silent. And if you're going through a difficult time and you're just searching through the Scriptures and you're trying to find an exact answer like where God just says, if this happens, you do this. If this happens, you do this. And you're looking and you just can't find it. That the perfect place for us to come together as iron sharpens iron, to wrestle with our salvation together is in the fellowship of believers. And God has set up the church in such a way where he elects certain men to become elders of the church. And he has a specific standard that these men have to meet. They have to be above reproach, able to teach, knowledgeable of the word, word of God. Their family has to be in order. All these different expectations. So that when, when you get involved in a fellowship, and you at least know that there, there's a standard for these men and, and you can come talk to these men and you can ask for counsel and advice. And it's not just a um, counselor in the way that the world sees a counselor. But there's a spiritual component there as well. That God, through His Holy Spirit, as, as Paul was saying, I, I have the Spirit too. Paul was speaking from a place of the Holy Spirit and possibly of personal experience with marriage. And so this is what God has set up for us as a help. If you're in a difficult situation in your marriage, in your engagement, as a widow, maybe you're a single, then the church is the place to come to pray with fellow believers, to seek counsel for your life, to search the scriptures, maybe you're just missing something. Maybe the answer is clearly there. Well, how do we find it? We find it together. And so as a church, we should be together to help one another to make these difficult decisions. So I want to ask that you join with me in prayer. I want to pray specifically for the people in Ukraine, uh, people across the world. I want to pray for our leaders as well.
I want to pray for your hearts and, and ours and mine and that we would just be comforted by God's words and His promises. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we give you praise and glory for your goodness, your kindness, your leadership. God, when we look at all the men of the world in current time and time past, all of them have fallen short. But when we look at your son, Jesus Christ, when we look at the way he lived and how he died and the miracle of how he was raised from the dead, there is nobody in the history of the world like Jesus Christ. And so it's Jesus who we hail as our king. It's Jesus who we worship and we aspire to be like. It's Jesus who we trust for our salvation and eternal life. Help us to be more like Jesus. Help us to have care and concern for the, the lost and the poor. Help us to have care and concern for the oppressed and those who are wronged. God, give us care and concern for the, the people in Ukraine right now whose lives have been turned upside down. For those who are engaged, who, who are planning on being married next week, but, but can't follow through with it because of the way things are. God, comfort them with your love. God, you are the Lord over that situation. I, I ask that you be with the leaders of Ukraine. I pray for Vladimir Putin, Lord. Would you, would you change his heart? Would you reach in and cause him to be born again? And may the whole world see his radical change. May he fall on his knees and, and ask for forgiveness. God, you can do that. But also, God, it's your will, not ours. We know that you have a plan. We know that until the end, there will be wars and rumors of wars. But God, I just ask that everyone here, no matter what happens, would stay faithful to you, trusting in you and trusting in your promises. Thank you, God, for the counsel of the church. Thank you for fellowship. Thank you for the children, all the many children who just give us such, such hearts of worship. We love you. We appreciate this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd ask that you join us for soup. We do have uh, soup available, but you are dismissed.